And I think today, actually, in the 21st century, progress is not about more. It's not about accumulation, especially with um, the climate crisis and wealth inequality and things that we're experiencing on a global scale today. I think progress probably means something more proportional and more moderate. And that's what the book is about. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to episode five of the third season. Today we have a question to answer. Is intellectual property advancing humanity or not? Let's see what our guest has to say about it. My name is Jessica Silby, and I'm a law professor at Boston University School of Law in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. And I've been a law professor actually since 2004, so for a really long time. Um, but I've, um, I've been a lawyer since way before that. And before I was a lawyer, I was in graduate school studying both law and the humanities. I began my um, higher education thinking about the intersection of narrative and art and politics. I was interested in the role of language and visual medium to change the world, actually, thinking about how many revolutions, many positive changes in the world come from artists and um, inventors themselves. So I've always been thinking about that and I made my way to law Um, to be um, both a teacher, but also um, more practically minded. That is, I'm, um, I wanted to be, always wanted to be a teacher in the classroom, but I always wanted to have clients as well. And as a more of a literature scholar or a film scholar, for example, I would be much more always in the classroom and not really working in both the, um, the business world as well as the university. So I, I became a lawyer to do both of those things. And I've been teaching, as I said, teaching um, law for a long time. My, um, what I teach is both constitutional law, U.S. constitutional law, as well as intellectual property law. And that intersection is what brought me to write this book, which is called Against Progress, Intellectual Property and Fundamental Values in the Internet Age. So the U.S. Constitution gives the U.S. Congress the power to promote science and the useful arts um, by granting rights to authors and inventors for limited times. And the idea here is uh, what does progress mean when Congress is given the power to promote it by granting authors and inventors certain rights in their writings and inventions? And when uh, Congress first passed copyright and patent laws, for example, in 1790, so when the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1789, and just a year later, Congress passed laws granting copyrights and patents um, to authors and inventors, which gave them rights over their writings and their inventions. The question people ask is, what is the progress promoted by granting people exclusive rights over their writings and inventions? And so I asked the question in this book as to how that idea of progress by granting private rights in works of authorship and inventions um, is promoted over time. And the, the hook in the book is that um, the idea of progress changes and co the Constitution is an open document. It's sometimes called a great outline. And we're allowed or we're encouraged to fill it in with each generation of lawyers and citizens 
to give it more meaning. So, and meaning for our current, our current times. So in 1820, we might not have thought about rights of privacy, for example, not in cell phones, not in cars, you know, there was no <laughs> such thing in 1820, but we think today a lot about the right of privacy because so much has changed. So the same idea comes with progress. What does progress mean? And so just to end this short summary, um, the idea of progress early on in the, in the United States history really was about more, is about more, more works, more, more copyrighted works, more inventions, just accumulate lots of creative and innovative work, and hopefully the market will distribute it and there'll be benefits for society. Um, sort of a very consumerist, but also accumulationist idea of what progress is. And I think today, actually in the 21st century, progress is not about more. It's not about accumulation, especially with um, the climate crisis and wealth inequality and things that we're experiencing on a global scale today. I think progress probably means something more proportional and more moderate. And that's what the book is about. Is IP, intellectual property, a tool for progress? I think it really depends on, again, what we mean by progress. And I think one of the, the keys to understanding intellectual property is that there's always a, a balance embedded in the idea of intellectual property. So when you grant copyrights to authors, they have rights over their writings that are limited and, but exclusive. So I can prevent someone from copying my book without permission, for example. But if somebody wanted to quote my book to make a review of the book, that would be fine. That's not copyright infringement. So there's always a balance between control and access by the audience and the author. And so if we think about the tool, the IP as a tool for progress, we might think about how that balance has to be moderated with each generation, depending on what's being made and how audiences interact. So we might think also like, Patented medicines, whether it's diagnostic tools to detect breast cancer, for example, or it's vaccines, for example. Um, we want to encourage uh, scientists and companies to develop those important life-saving medicines so that they can, and we want to give them rights over those medicines so that they can recuperate their financial investment in making that risk to, to build those medicines. But we also can't price those medicines out of the market so that people can access them. And so intellectual property law builds in this, this idea of balance between access and private rights. And I think um, when IP is working well as a tool for progress, which I think about as social good, as, as the accumulation of, of human flourishing, actually, that's how I think about progress. I think intellectual property is working well when that access private right balance is well made. The answer will be, what do we define as progress? What has a society, what do we want? What do we wish to have or we wish to obtain? What do we wish to reach? Mm -hmm. uh, so and with, that, with that in mind, then we can see if IP helps or prevents um, this idea of progress. Yeah. So here's another example. So some people think that we just have too many patents and too many copyrights, that there's almost like a thicket of, you know, when you try to make a music mashup, for example, for your kids set seventh grade school and all the music that you try to accumulate to put on this thing for their class gets blocked because it's copyrighted and you're not allowed to, you know, you think, 
like, what's the harm here? Like, what am I doing? I mean, I'm just putting something together for my kid's school. I'm not replacing it in the marketplace. You know, you think this, this is wasteful and it's impeding the kind of human interactions that we think are positive and productive. Um, so that's, that's one kind of example that you might think where progress is not being served or um, too many patents uh, um, sometimes create holdups where companies are afraid to actually move into a field because they're afraid of being sued. And so sometimes we think so, so much, sometimes too much private property gets in the way of the kind of promotion of more innovation. And so um, we, we, we really want to, we, we want to worry a lot about who's benefiting from the accumulation and who's being impeded from doing the creativity and innovation that we think IP is actually supposed to promote. In the current IP system, so what are the main issues that you have identified? There are. Um, one thing that I talk about is the, um, the statutory damages provisions and copyright, for example. So if you are unintentionally a copyright infringer, like you scrape a photo from a website and you put it on your PowerPoint and you give a lecture, for example, you could be sued for up to $150,000 in the United States federal court, right? So, so that feels really out of proportion and, um, and un unreasonable, actually, um, to a lot of people, especially because the way we operate on the internet today is that we, we are bricklers. We, we, you know, we, we, we are constantly not taking like stealing, but we're, we're participating in the online conversation in the way we are being encouraged to by, by all the digital affordances. So I think one of the problems, one of the problems with, um, with the IP system right now is it's really out of proportion in terms of what the, what the risks are versus what the rewards are. I think another problem is that who benefits from the IP system is actually much more likely to be aggregators, people who collect IP, um, you know, whether it's database owners or, um, or patent aggregators or uh, companies that hold a lot of music copyright, like not the artist, for example, but the one who owns all the, uh, like collects all the rights. And in the olden days, we would have thought like, those are the publishers, like the book authors are the people who lose and the publishers are the one who wins. And so another way of talking about this is whether the intermediaries in the industrial age or the platforms or intermediaries in the digital age are the ones that are outsized benefit of the um, outsized beneficiaries of the IP system. So there's a disproportionate wealth disparity. There's a, um, a question of who, who wins on a, like the, the people who win, who are the foreseeable winners in this system are very predictable. And that feels unfair. It feels like when you always know who's going to win, who's going to lose, like the system is not, is not, is, is actually rigged. And that feels like not a, a fair system. Um, and finally, I just say, I think um, some of the problem, like, I just don't think the IP system thinks very hard about consumer welfare or audience benefits, thinks a lot about private rights and private property without thinking about what is really the other full half of IP, which is the public interest. And so I think thinking more about what that public interest actually is, is, is going to be important for reforming IP law. So it's about... Thinking not only of the, well, we have the provisions for creators, for inventors, also for the people who make it happen, 
the publishers, the platforms and all that, the one who collects the rights. So on that half is taken care of. Now we need to think about the other half, the consumers, the one who actually make or break a book, a film, a song great is the audience. It's the audience that have the, the power to make something of value or, 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 or seize the value of something. Some people would say that the everyday creators and inventors aren't get aren't benefiting. So I think that there are a lot of people who think that the individuals in the system, you know, um, don't see benefits the way the aggregators do. And so if there was a ranking of who benefits, it would be the collectors or the aggregators, um, the intermediaries, then the individual rights holders, be that the author or the inventor. And then there would be all of us sort of who are, um, who are consumers or remixers or users, whatever we call them. And I think one of the problems in IP is we do create a hierarchy like that. And it's not a hierarchy. Intellectual property does not create a hierarchy like that. Um, in a capitalist system, we think that those who take the risks to invest in the work and build these companies to sort of hedge all the bets of which which film is going to hit it big or which invention is going to hit it big. Those are the ones that deserve all the payoff. But that's not the way intellectual property works. I mean, it's it's not actually solely utilitarian in that way. And it also does think about about social welfare. It thinks about social welfare a lot. So. Um, so I, I think that that implicit hierarchy is false, and one of, we should be thinking about um, people on all these stakeholders um, equally, actually. And one of the values that I talk about in the book, I mean, it talks about intellectual property and fundamental values. One of the values is equality, thinking about equal treatment of these stakeholders in the IP balance. Um, and I think that's important because we, just as you say, we as users or audience members, or even authors, like we're all authors, you're an author right now, authoring this podcast, right? So um, we are not only one of those things. I think we move in all those different categories. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Yes. And, and speaking of fundamental values, tell us this concept that you describe in your book. The values that I identify, there are, of course, many values one could identify, but I picked four to focus on in the book. I focus on equality, like, like the equality of the stakeholders that I just mentioned. I focus on privacy, importance of privacy in the digital age and how intellectual property is not usually considered a vehicle for promoting privacy, but it can be. I write about distributive justice, which is something I sort of just mentioned a little bit more about how to distribute equity or um, opportunity in a way that promotes human flourishing more um, effectively rather than a winner takes all or a lottery system, for example, thinking about intellectual property as a system that promotes human flourishing and therefore might withhold from some people and give to others for that reason. Um, and then the fourth value I talk about is institutional inclusivity. The idea that um, our institutions that help produce IP or help manage IP or use IP, even like university systems, for example, should be more inclusive as a in order to promote um, participation and accountability and as a form of democratic decision making, actually. So um, one of the things that I, I write about in the book is how um, there's a lot of critiques of our IP institutions that they are not inclusive and that they are not resilient. 
and um, and that they are that there's actually profound precarity in these institutions that the participants in them experience, and that precarity or um, exclusivity uh, renders those institutions illegitimate. So people could complain about music label companies, for example, or plat- big platforms, for example, as not being transparent or accountable to its users and its stakeholders and unstable, profoundly unstable. Um, and that, that makes, uh, I think, all of us who rely on these things on a regular basis um, feel a sense of anxiety and precarity. And that precarity, ironically, leads us to grab on to the things that we need even more. So there's this vicious cycle where we feel like our institutions are failing us. We grab on to the things we need, be that private property or certain essential relations. And we become, I think, understandably more grabby about that. And that 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 then um, creates a justification for us all going off into our corners and claiming what we think we are owed rather than creating more interdependence and networking, which actually will foster or shore up the institution. So there is a, a vicious cycle with the institutional precarity that I think creates more demand for private property, which actually doesn't help the situation at all. So I think one of the things that I hope to do with the book by focusing on these shared values, which are necessarily mutual, like equality is not a zero sum game. When we are treated equally, not nobody is treated less than, right? It's not what did I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg talk. Equality is not pie. You know, it doesn't get used up, you know, when you eat, when you eat a piece. Um, equality is for everybody. So these values actually are, are shared values and they, they're public goods. They do not get used up when we maximize them. And so to think about it that way is important to think about how intellectual property is that system as well. Intellectual property feeds off the idea of a public good. That the, you know, the more you sing the song, that does not mean that the song is used up, right? So we should be singing more songs, right? We shouldn't be worried about not singing the songs. The fundamental values would make uh, um, the system more fair in, yeah. in, in every sense. It, it, and it will make people want to participate more, feel as though they are, um, they are being treated, you know, f- as you say, fairly, but also that there is an opportunity to flourish and to grow. and um, You know, there, there are examples I could provide if um, if we had time. Yes, I, yes, please do. Okay, okay. so um, so there's a case of call about um, a farmer in Indiana, Vernon, Vernon Bowman. He's a he's a soybean farmer, and he used Monsanto seeds. Monsanto is this big seed producer, and, and Monsanto has a seed that's patented that if you plant it with a special fertilizer called Roundup. The, the seed is particularly resistant to crop destroying diseases. And, and Bowman had been using Monsanto seeds for a long time. I mean, farming is a really precarious profession and he likes having seeds that are protected from diseases. Um, but one of the things that farmers also do is once you plant the seed and then you grow the soy and then you sell the soy at the market, sometimes farmers withhold some of the sales and replant the seeds for the late harvest crop, which is quite risky. You don't know how much soy you're going to get from the late harvest crop. So when you buy the seeds from Monsanto, which have patents in them, they're patented seeds, Monsanto is giving you permission to use their patents. That's what happens. It's called the first sale doctrine. And when you buy a cell phone or you buy the seeds, you're allowed to use the patents that are embodied 
in the thing that you bought, but you're not allowed to make copies of the thing. So when you buy your cell phone and it has patents in it, you're not allowed to make a copy of the cell phone. Copying is patent infringement. Um, But seeds by their nature copy themselves. When you plant them, they make a copy of themselves. That's what they are. And so when Bowman planted his seeds to grow soy, he was given permission by Monsanto to make a copy of the seed by planting them because that's what they do. But, but Monsanto only let farmers plant the seed and sell as soy, not plant the seed to make more seed and plant as seed. That's what Monsanto said in their little contract on their bag. And Bowman didn't do that. Bowman had been a farmer for, he was 83 when this lawsuit was filed. He'd been saving seed forever. Like that's what farmers do. And so when Monsanto sued him for patent infringement, the farming industry freaked out because they're like, you know, we save seed. It's a hard, it's a hard job to lay. And so this lawsuit was basically about the difference between strictly construing patent law. You know, yes, seeds replicate themselves. That is what they do. But what did Monsanto think they were doing? Like that they were creating patented seeds. It was about that and this age old, uh, age old practice among farmers to save some seed for the next crop. I mean, they're not saving so much that they're not going to buy more seed. I mean, Bowman buys Monsanto seed all the time. Monsanto owns 92% of the soybean market in the United States. Like Monsanto is not um, suffering <laughs> because, because Bowman saves some of his seeds. So this is a distributive justice problem. This is, you know, like, why should Monsanto care so much about the handful of seeds that Bowman saves? Now, Monsanto would say it's not a handful. Monsanto would say that if all the farmer Bowmans in the United States save their seeds, they would sell less seeds. But part of me thinks like, so sell a little less seeds. You know, like it's a you're a very big company. You make a lot of money. These farmers are having a really hard time. Like at what point is enough is enough? That's one of the things that I think about. So that's one of the examples of distributive justice that I think that case was really about the, the mutual flourishing of a giant company and a set of farmers. And I think the court got it wrong when they held that Bowman was an infringer. I think they should have said the other way around that Bowman should have been that there was very there was de minimis harm in what Bowman was doing. And the patent act shouldn't have extended to the kind of sustainable practices that farmers have been engaging in for a long time. So that's an example of distributive justice argument in a patent case that I think went awry. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an example. And at the end, then. The farmer was not. Uh, He's an infringer. The, the farmer was an infringer. Yeah. And do you know any uh, uh, consequences for the farming industry on, on that? Well, in it's interesting. Um, so one of the things that's happened, that was a 2013 case. Um, there's been a movement in the past 10 years called Free the Seeds. And it's an it's an agro movement, you know, a, a, a climate justice, um, sustainable agricultural movement. And it, they partner the um, sustainable agriculture movement is trying to reform patent law, actually, to prevent this kind of ongoing what they think is overclaiming in the seed patents. Um, and then they join they're joining forces with the genetic biotech movement. So the idea of access to medicine. So in another case that happened a couple of years later, actually, the decision was a little bit better from the U.S. Supreme Court where um, genetic modification to genes. The question was whether that can be patented. And those were 
breast cancer diagnostics. And the court actually split the case. On the one hand, certain genetic modifications were not patentable, and that made some diagnostic texts much, much more affordable. In another part of the case, it held that certain kinds of modifications that were done in a lab and that were truly inventive were patentable. So that, that case took one step closer to making medicine more accessible in terms of prices, for example, and follow-on technology. Um, but this free the seeds movement and the access to medicine movement have actually been um, gr- uh, growing in momentum in part, I think, because of the um, outcry after the Bowman case. So that last case was about the, the breast cancer diagnosis, no? Yes, yes, yes. It's called Myriad Genetics. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's it, it became famous, this diagnosis, because of the celebrity that did the process. Then everyone wanted to to know how she got her her hold on, on this process. And and a lot of people say, well, it should be something that is available for the public in general, not only the people who can afford That's these great right. prices. That's right. So in the United States, you know, healthcare is very, very expensive. Um, it's We're trying to manage the prices with different kinds of legislation. But this was one of those new technologies that was very expensive. Um, so only rich people um, could afford it or if you had really special insurance. And um, and so some celebrities made the diagnostic test quite like put it in the spotlight in the media And that that brought a lot of attention. It's an interesting case, the Myriad Genetics case, actually, because it's one of the first intellectual property cases that's gone to the United States Supreme Court, where the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union in the United States, brought the case. So this is where a combination of civil liberties lawyering and intellectual property law explicitly come together to bring a case to um, in federal court. And so that's just another example, I think, of how intellectual property law and civil rights is where fundamental fundamental rights are um, coming together to form this new new rhetoric in, in the 21st century. And it would eventually shape what we want um, where we, or, or what we need as a society. Because, okay, we, we do need progress uh, in the sense that we will define it. Uh, we do need people creating, inventing, and, and making new and improved things, but we also need to have access to them because it's not about just creating them and put them, putting them in a, in a glass door you can see but not touch. So it, it must be fair and must be accessible. Of course, if you invest, you should get a return from your investment, but it's not only about you. It's That's also right. about the other people. That's right. That's right. And, um, Yeah. So, I mean, and the idea that you made it yourself is always uh, false. Um, it's a myth, right? The, the myth of the solo inventor or the romantic author, like no one makes anything themselves. Right. So um, and we the, the phrase, you, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. It's it's absolutely true. And so one of the other things that um, I think this book is trying to focus on is how Creativity and innovation is entirely iterative, like it, it, it's follow on and it grows from what came before. And that that um, virtuous, that virtuosity of building on what came before is something that I think we should double down on. And I think it would make us feel a little little less um, like we have in private entitlements to these things and more like we belong to this grand lineage of creativity and innovation and that we would think more in terms of communities of creativity and innovation rather than individuals. Yeah, it would be a shift on the, on the mindset that yeah. we are 
in the sense that we are not alone in every sense. We are not alone in inventing and creating. We're not alone in consuming either or using. Uh, so we are part of a whole. And right. the more we think about that, the better the better it is for everyone. <laughs> that, for that, if this pandemic has not made that obvious, I don't know what else will. It's um it's crazy how many great things we have seen coming out of this uh, crisis, but also how many <laughs> no so great things we have seen yeah. as well. So it has been quite a test for humanity, and I think in some instances we did great, especially in collaboration, in in making in reaching the goal of of creating uh, treatment, creating vaccines, and so on. But in some other instances we're still lacking. We're still lacking. Oh, that's for. Sure, for sure. Yeah, the the arc of progress um, doesn't end. That's for sure. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So finally, let's talk about the digital era. Yeah. So, what do we need to change in IP for yeah. uh, making it uh, workable in the digital era? So this is always the hardest question for me because um, my my strengths as a scholar and a teacher have always been to be descriptive of phenomenon, not to be prescriptive. Um, like I'm, I'm not a policymaker. I, you know, I don't aspire to be, but I, I have some ideas there. They just feel sort of small, but I, I'm happy to share them with you. So some things that I, sometimes I think small things make a big difference, I will say. But uh, so I mentioned already the statutory damages in copyright law. I, I definitely think that the, the, the damages regime in copyright law is disastrous and creates um, outsized risks and anxieties that, um, that prevent, I think, people coming together to reasonable dispute resolutions. So I think uh, we need to get rid of what are high statutory damages in favor of a, of a quick resolution, dispute resolution mechanism. U.S. Copyright Office is is um, experimenting with a small claims court, actually. And so I think that is a step in the right direction. I don't particularly like the way that this small claims court has been set up, um, but I think it's it, the right idea. Uh, I think it, it still has too high damages and it brings people in to the tune of $30,000. So most people, that's just like a lot of money. You know, small claims court is usually up to $5,000 or something like that. And so so there's, there's, there's some problem, but I do like the idea of quick, easy dispute resolution when people are feeling aggrieved by um, unauthorized taking that would otherwise be infringement. So, so I think quick dispute resolution that thinks more about the um, about the balance would be easier. I, there's another feature, I think, that IP law could spend more time thinking about. And that's just to think more about the norms of the communities themselves. And so when I talk about Farmer Bowman, for example, like I don't I think the age old practice of saving seed should have been relevant to the, dis the dispute resolution in that case. But somehow the law or the way the Supreme Court and appellate courts deal with legal doctrine, they ignore the lived realities of the community and the practices in the community. So a lot of creators and innovators explicitly borrow from other people like they we we all tolerate a lot of copying and borrowing um, we, as creators and innovators ourselves. And yet when you get to a legal decision, there's all this strict application and recitation of the no copying rule. And so I think that there's there's a way for the law to um, 
incorporate or consider the actual more generous practices of the creators and innovators themselves. Most creators and innovators don't need um, the strict IP laws that we have to do the work that they do. So I think paying more attention to the norms of, of the innovators and creators themselves would be, um, and I'll just give an example of that. Um, actually, there's a specific provision in the U.S. patent system that um, doctors and surgeons advocate and hospitals advocated for many years ago, which um, is because doctors and surgeons sometimes develop special medical um, procedures that improve, you know, the hernia operation or improve the heart transplant operation. And in the moment they develop, they invent a new procedure and it's so good and they want lots of people to be able to use it because it's going to benefit their patients. Well, the patents, if you patent that procedure, no one can use it without payment. And, and some people were patenting it, some device manufacturers or some entities and doctors and surgeons got together and said, we we do not want that to be exclusive. We want that an exception to the, because we, we do it. We are inventors. We want to be known as inventors and we can file for patents actually, but no one can sue us if we practice that. And so there is an actually an exception for direct infringement in the patent statute for medical procedures. Um, and that's an example of where the norms of the community came together. They saw a problem of being disincentivized from treating patients with exceptional care because of the patent statute. And they got the patent statute amended to reflect those norms and, and ethics of the community. And so, um, so that kind of stuff, I think I would like to see more of. I would like to see creators and innovators empowered to ask Congress to create exceptions or to recognize their practices as worthy of being embedded into the, into the statutes. Yes, there's power in numbers. And when yeah. you're organized as a community, when you you know exactly what you want and what you don't want, it's it's very powerful and you can really make change and make it quick. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Jessica, for your time. And thank you for writing this very interesting book. Um, the title again is Against Progress, Intellectual Property and Fundamental Values in the Internet Age. Thank you so much. And yes, we look forward to whatever you do next. Thank you. We have reached the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Greetings from Switzerland. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.